Hey everyone, this is Jose Nino here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today I have an interesting guest that I've grown to enjoy through my devoted following of, of the show, The Praise of Folly podcast, and I've brought on the host of that show, Todd Lewis, and even another participant in it, Keith Preston, to El Nino Speaks, and they're both great guests. But today I have brought Alec Bash to talk about a host of controversial issues in 21st century politics. How are you today, Alec? Doing well. How about you? Oh, I'm doing great. I am really looking forward to the discussion. But before we start, uh, tell my audience about yourself and your body of work. I own a company called Academic Composition, academiccomposition.com. It's an academic writing company where we basically do online classes for university students. That If, you, if, they, if they don't want to do their own work and they're tired of the woke propaganda there, that's not relevant to their to their career, to their to their actual passion, then they come to us and we do it for them. I got my degree in philosophy back in 2009. I've studied Kant and Schopenhauer quite extensively. And after that, in 2009, after, upon graduating, I, have, uh, I, I discovered that my philosophy degree was useless. And I, I, that left me with no choice but to try my, my hand at running a business. So what I did is go on Craigslist and post an ad promoting my academic writing services. And that worked out well. I've been doing this full-time ever since. In 2014, I met Keith Preston, and he became my first full-time writer and now my longest-serving writer. He's a senior writer at Academic Composition, and together... We've made tremendous progress at academic composition. My other interests include, of course, history, sociology, political science, of course. I follow politics in the U.S. quite closely, although I, I no longer live in the U.S. I, in 2019, I, I left for Mexico. I've learned basic Spanish there, and then I went to Spain, where I, where I achieved intermediate-level competence. Then I ended up in Brazil. And after that, I lived in Serbia and Montenegro right before the war started. And I ended up heading back to Brazil, which is where I am now. And I've, say, I've acquired intermediate-level proficiency in the Portuguese language. Uh, well, what I, what I find the most interesting about this experience of, of having lived in seven different countries is that I, I, I'm able to examine the American culture from the perspective of a different culture, and this gives me insight into the nature of America in ways that I wouldn't have been able to understand had I just lived in the U.S. exclusively. And uh, as far as uh, the modern issues are concerned, I'm a big fan of the cyclical interpretation of history, so specifically the Neil Hoff's trust Hoff generational theory, which holds that, that every cycle of American history is approximately 88 years long, and there are four Turians within that cycle. Now we're in the middle of the fourth Turian, which is quite reminiscent of, the, of what happened in the 1930s, comprehensive overhaul of society altogether, or the nature of our institutions and the economy has altered dramatically. The previous fourth Turian was the Civil War, and the one before was the War of Independence. So what I, everything t tells me here, from, from everything I gather, is that 
We're again for a massive change. In another 10 years, the United States will be a different kind of society that we probably cannot even imagine. So I think some of my audience members will be curious about this because you do have um, a pretty strong accent. Where are you originally from? I'm originally from Russia. I, I lived there until I was 11 years, until I was 11, and I came to Michigan. I lived in the U.S. 20 years until I left, uh, left from Mexico in 2019. Okay, I'm actually really curious about this because I have I brought on a previous guest who's actually a friend of Keith's, um, uh, James Guzman, and he lives in Mexico. What prompted your moves to live abroad? Actually, you know, I, I used James's services. He had a relocation package at the time uh, where he where he offered consultation sessions to people who wanted to relocate, and he helped me get set up. Although uh, he 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 was he was suggesting that I go to San Miguel de Allende, which is where he lives. I opted for Puerto Vallarta. The reason I, I decided to leave is that I realized that. But I, I have nothing holding me back in the U.S. That I've noticed that the main reason people choose to live in a specific city in the U.S. is, first of all, financial, and secondly, their ties to the community. And I've, I've been making my living online. That's, that's first. And secondly, I realize that all, almost all of my social relationships are weak in the U.S., if that. So uh, there was really nothing holding me back, and I, and I had everything to gain by going to a country with a more laid-back culture, where interpersonal connections are easier to find, better climate, and of course, a country that's cheaper. I decided that I'm better off being a tourist in Mexico than, being, than, than, than living in the U.S. indefinitely as a naturalized citizen. But then I realized that Mexico had left for a lot to be desired, and I decided to, to go to Spain, mostly out of safety considerations. And it turns out this was a good idea, as the, the pandemic in Mexico has not been easy to manage. Spain had tough lockdowns, and I'm not happy with the way they handled it, but at least uh, Spain is definitely much safer than Mexico, and, there was the, and it has a better, more of a refined culture. Mexico, it's uh, not as easy. It's not as easy to find people who like to have interesting discussions or people who like literature, art, and whatnot. Yet in the European country, I found more of that. So the point you mentioned about relationships like online and whatnot is very relatable for me because most of the business contacts and people I've met since graduating the university, this was 2013, I went to UT Austin, have generally been through online message boards and similar groups online, whether it's like on Twitter or Facebook. I have noticed in the US, and this is based off like the famous book, Bowling Alone, that the US is metaphorically bullying alone in the sense that there has been a breakdown of civil society and numerous public venues and spaces where people traditionally meet, uh, would meet each other. Now that has totally changed and you're, you're seeing record levels of loneliness um, now, especially among Generation Z and people are just not going to church anymore or really participating in these activities like bowling leagues, for example. A lot of this stuff has become anachronistic and it definitely does have major political implications further down the line. Now, 
How would you describe your like political journey? Were you like a libertarian before? What what got you into politics exactly? Well, I'm a little embarrassed to confess that as a young man, I was liberal, believe it or not. I said, I blame that on, on, on the indoctrination I received at the university. But even back then, the culture of political correctness was strong, but it wasn't tyrannical and then oppressively woke as it is now. And one reason I voted for Obama in 2008 is that I was disappointed with the way the Bush administration handled the war, well, they started two wars that I thought were not necessary, and uh, the the kind of the economy has seen better days under Clinton than, than under Bush. So I thought that if if, if the Democrats were to were to be elected again, maybe we'd see a similar boom that we saw in the 1990s under Clinton. But what I saw was the opposite. In fact, Obama started more wars than Bush. Obama started four wars. Tunisia, Tunisia, Yemen, Libya, and I believe even Syria. So that, that's four wars that Obama started. That's twice the number of wars. But the real turning point for me was Obamacare. That's when I realized that you know, while socialized medicine may work well in, in other countries, even developing countries like Brazil, reasonably well, it's just not going to be possible in the U.S., and it made things much worse. Before Obamacare, I had a great healthcare plan. After that, I found myself paying three thousand dollars just for for basic dental cleaning. And Obamacare basically says that you have the option of paying the fine if you don't get healthcare, or you have to you have to get healthcare insurance. And what happens then? Well, the quality plummets, and uh, the cost the cost of medical premiums are going to skyrocket. That this, so that's actually a profound reason for why I ended up moving away from the United States. And then, and then really, when I, I've reached the point of no return, when I've seen the 2016 BLM massacre in St. Louis, I believe Officer Darren Wilson shot a, a suspect in self-defense. And as far as I know, he was not convicted of any criminal charges in the police department had no apparent reason to believe that the, the officer Wilson behaved inappropriately. Nonetheless, his career was ruined. And I saw a pretty sharp difference between BLM politics and the civil rights of the 1960s. You see, in the 1960s, Martin Luther King famously said that his dream was to, to have people judged by, by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. What we're seeing now is the opposite. Obamacare's version of racial justice is historical settling of scores. They see that this is also the identity politics when it comes to feminists. That nowadays, unlike the traditional feminists, such as Susan B. Anthony or Florence Nightingale, modern feminists are not interested in mere equality. They're interested in settling the score for all the perceived past injustices. And I, the, the, I saw two things, really three things. First of all, identity politics pushed me to the right. Secondly, Obamacare. Thirdly, the the liberal liberal proclivity to wage war, unnecessary wars in other countries. And fourthly, of course, the deteriorating state of the economy. My perception was that there that the full recovery from the Great Recession never actually happened. 
If anything, the standards 11 haven't plummeted. Bentley in 09 and 2019, real wages have plummeted. Inflation has been going up. And job opportunities are all the more scarce. So that's four reasons why I've re- I, I regretted having voted for Obama and why I'm certain that I'll never vote Democrat again. So this is that's interesting. I remember when I was in middle school and even early high school, I had somewhat of a brief Marxist phase because that's when I started reading literature like uh, Das Kapital and like uh, other books like that. But I was weird because I, I've oscillated between like that and even like neo neoconservatism, like especially after like 9-11. But I became like a libertarian, mostly like through Ron Paul, like tw- in the latter half of high school. But nowadays, I see myself more like a dissident right, like type of like populist right type of person. Do you identify more with like uh, Keith's Preston's anarchism, or how do you uh, label yourself these days? I would not say that I'm an anarchist. See, one one, one issue I take with anarchism uh, is one that I saw in my in the '90s, growing up in Russia, that the government is weak and it does not assert the legitimate authority of the state. Eventually, there will be a de facto government. For instance, yeah. the reason I left Mexico was the Culiacan disaster, where. Uh, or the Mexican authorities tried to just try, try to over the, uh, to, to detain Avedio Guzman, uh, the son of El Chapo Guzman, and it became a disaster. And then Amlocero Abrasas, Nobelasas, the Hogs Nobelas, yeah. he refused. He refused to assert the legitimate authority of the state. Eventually, of course, uh, two years later, Avedio was captured, and uh, but that came way too late. So the, what I what I'm noticing in Mexico. In Colombia, another example of a weak state is that the criminal underworld will assert their own form of government. And that is why I'm not an anarchist. I believe I, I, my views are actually more in line with that of Thomas Hobbes, that there must be a strong Leviathan to, to maintain any order whatsoever. What we see in parts of Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil is the Hobbesian war of all against all. Look at how extremely dangerous Acapulco is. Well, look at what's going on in Rio. If that's not the modern example of the Hobbesian state of nature, I don't know what may be. Or if you want to go a step further, look at Somalia. So I'm a, I'm a traditional libertarian, but I would say a small libertarian with a small letter L. I'm not, I'm not ideological in the sense that I'd say, oh, let's privatize the army. Let's privatize the police. I would say that there are certain cases where there are limited cases where the government can serve the public good. For example, building roads. It's going to be a railroads. See, it's going to be difficult and expensive for uh, for private parties to build that. And in, in the 19th century, there has been a lot of what's known as ruinous competition in, in the railroad business. That uh, businesses kept on undercutting one another. And in many cases, they'd rather not build a railroad or a road rather than give an advantage to one of their competitors. So that's an example where you can reasonably say that the government is not overstepping its boundaries by building roads. The other thing is socialized healthcare and quality education. Look, look, look at the Scandinavian states, Finland, Norway, Denmark, and uh, any, any other Northern European country, really. 
Sweden, Finland, Norway, and Denmark. So uh, they have their free market economies. Even according to the Heritage Institute, their, uh, their scores in economic freedom are much higher than that of the U.S. Yes, they could have done better had they had less of a welfare state, had they paid less for education. But well, what this goes to show is that you can still have a robust market economy and have basic public services and, and also design them in a way that they're somewhat difficult to exploit. That's always going to happen. See, I, as far as I recall, even Friedrich Hayek went so far as to support socialized medicine. That's the difference between him and Milton Friedman. What we have in the U.S. is the most expensive healthcare system in the world, as far as I know. And uh, you would think that generally all the, the, the government wastes more money than private companies, that American healthcare system should be more efficient, less costly, but it's not. So I would say that there's got to be a basic social safety net at the very least, but I also believe that the, the political system that, that a country elects, the political system that will operate, has to represent the cultural values. Of, uh, of the citizenry. See, there are, there are many kinds of capitalism. There, there is American capitalism, there is Norwegian capitalism, there is Japanese capitalism. And, and you see there are different versions of capitalism in South America and Africa. On the other hand, communist states tend to be more homogeneous, tend to be more monolithic. For instance, the economies of Cuba and North Korea differ from one another less than capitalist economies of Japan and the U.S. differ from, from one another. So I'd say that if I, uh, in most cases, I'd err on the side of having less government. But I also understand that in some countries, especially countries with low, with low levels of corruption, high levels of group cohesion, especially ethnically homogeneous countries like Japan or Norway, it's entirely reasonable to have a social safety net. But for that, you need, you need, you need a great deal of social capital. As Robert Putnam writes about, about that, that, that social capital in the U.S. has been declining, has been waning. That we're seeing, we're seeing less and less all of this social solidarity in American society. So I don't think that America can can benefit from an extensive social safety net the way that these countries have benefited from it. This is actually a really good point that you raise because in my libertarian phase, I would have reduced everything to purely economics and like economic policy, but there are certain cultural nuances and differences in terms of political practices among certain civilizations that don't make solving certain problems a question of like whether we need to reduce the amount of taxes or the amount of government spending. Rather, you have to think more like fundamental in terms of like law and order. Now I'm curious about the uh, about your experience in Russia because 90s Russia is kind of a niche topic that you hear some people mention with respect to like the failures of neoliberalism and really rapid forms of privatization what um about 90s Russia made it look like kind of like a state that was like in a state of nature where things were breaking down and what would you say characterize like 90s russia overall well there are, there is a number of characteristics first of all is the corruption and the process of privatization that the yeltsin administration sold off state assets to the oligarchs for basement prices 
That's that's the first thing. Secondly, of course, the weak state. This is, to me, in a way, a refutation of anarchism. Yeltsin's failure to assert legitimate authority of the state opened the door for the for the organized crime syndicates to to enforce their own form of legitimacy. And thirdly, I would say there is a rampant inflation and poverty. So in a way, around the nineties, Russia. Well, it was a bit like Argentina in 2001. Russia had all of the defects of a, of a troubled Latin American society. Corruption, economic crisis, inflation, rampant criminality, and total erosion of law, law and order. Would you say that these factors contributed to the rise of a, like a strongman like Putin at the start of the 21st century in Russia? Absolutely, yes. So, this is the, the, the this is in, in a way in a way Putin Putin's response to Yeltsin is similar to how Thomas Hobbes may, may respond to to John Locke's argument that, that that people are have have a certain benevolence. There's been the human nature is benevolent, and people are cooperative, and an anarchy anarchy would be better would be better than than a despot. But Hobbes came out and said that even the worst despot. Is better than total anarchy, and it seems that there's some wisdom to this. Most Russians whom I whom I know generally prefer Putin to Yeltsin, and they're willing to forgive him for his overbearing tyranny. But I I have a more nuanced point of view. For me, Ukraine is a, is a country that uh, that re- has not fully recovered from the 1990s. Ukraine re- remained. A free for all remain a lightly remain a country with a weak centralized government, and for, at the very least, it's still a democracy. So I would not go so far as to agree with Thomas Hobbes that even the worst despot, worst tyrant, is going to be better than total anarchy. I, I would say that that it's understandable why a lot of people would prefer to have. They have a, they have an autocracy instead of mayhem, the way that it happened in Russia in the 1990s. But there has to be a way of limiting the the authoritarian overreach of the uh, of the of the strongman who creates the so-called order. Yeah, I I think that there is a fine line between um authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Do you do you see like a distinction between those two or do do you view them as almost synonymous? No, no, they're 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 quite different. Uh, in fact, Russia has a history of totalitarianism dating dating all the way back to the Tsar. There's the see the 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 doctrine of uh, of the absolute authority of the Tsar is predicated on the thesis of the Third Rome. The Third Rome was Moscow, of course. The second was Istanbul. The first was Rome, and there is a Caesar. There was a thesis known as Caesaro Papers, which uh, which basically means that uh, the Tsar is God's direct representative, and uh, this means that he that he has the, the authority to mold minds in any way that he sees fit. See, uh, when when Stalin Lenin came out with his thesis. The new Soviet man, where he wanted to, you know, he where he believed that any 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 socialist Russian could be the best chess player, the best writer, on par with gold and whatnot. And uh, what he was looking for was a profound transformation of consciousness. To me, this is an essence of totalitarianism, that the state controls every aspect 
of one's life. And see what Lenin did. He didn't actually invent his own idea. It wasn't anything, it wasn't anything original about that. He, he simply secularized and modified the Cesaro Papers doctrine. He, he created, he created a, a Bolshevik version of that. And uh, Russia has always been totalitarian in the sense of the state, a centralized authority figure, wanted, wanted to mold minds and, and, and turn them into, into ideal kinds of citizens. In fact, I believe Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote about that, the general will, you see. It's, it's not consensus. General will has nothing to do with democracy. It represents this broad, abstract, amorphous idea that there is some kind of a hidden identity to a nation. And that, and that to be free, as he says, one must be compelled or forced to be free. One must be assimilated to it. To me, Rousseau is, is, has a totalitarian philosophy from start to finish. And he also believes in the novel savage, which is the idea that, well, why would you need an authoritarian despot to protect you from other people? And people are naturally benevolent. So let them voluntarily sacrifice themselves for the good for the greater good. And let's leave it at that. So how does this differ from authoritarianism? Well, to get a clear example of authoritarianism, we can look at Francisco Franco. The Franco differed significantly from, from leaders like Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera, who was an actual fascist. Primo de Rivera had a totalitarian view. that He, he believed in, in the use of violence to excoriate people who refused to come into refuse to conform, refuse to comply, refuse to live in a way that he thought was appropriate. But Franco thought that was a little too extreme, which is why he deployed the, the, the blue division or the phalanges to fight for Hitler. For, for Franco, what mattered most was uh, tradition, his personal power, rigid and bureaucratically maintained authority, and, a, and if you were not getting in his way, well, then you were free to to do as you wish. But with a totalitarian leader, you, you're, you're expected to, to fully comply. And not only fully comply with all the, all the dictates of the, of the government, but to do so voluntarily, eagerly, and cheerfully. Yeah, this is why in the Soviet Union there, there, there used to be pioneer camps, which is basically Boy Scout camps for communists. And the idea is to make your communist study. You see, that wasn't just wasn't enough that you just do as the communists tell you to do. You have to become a, a sincere believer. And this is one reason why communism collapsed in the 1980s and 1970s. There was widespread cynicism and disillusionment with communism. And uh, without that, and the state no longer had the authority, no longer had the, the no longer had the opportunity. To, to control people with an iron fist the way that Stalin did. And uh, that is the fundamental difference. You see, totalitarianism requires a profound transformation of consciousness. Authoritarianism is usually enough to merely enforce obedience and leave it at that. When you look at Russian history overall, it's a political history and just political development. I get the impression that it has never really had liberalism per se in terms of a political system. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I'd say so. In the 19, 1990s, Boris Yeltsin was the first state to be elected democratically. 
And he implemented his own version of neoliberalism, which is mostly which is mostly based on the Washington consensus. It was done very hastily, haphazardly, in a manner that did not truly liberal liberalize Russia. So I'd say, if anything, the Russia's core political system is more like that of China than any liberal society. This leads to another question of mine, because there's all this talk, like if you just tune on to Fox News or mainstream, or any mainstream outlet for that matter, regardless of like the Democrat, Republican political spectrum, there's always an emphasis about Vladimir Putin being like ex-KGB and that he's trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Do you see the Russian Federation in its present iteration as um, a successor state to the Soviet Union, both not just like in terms of like sequential like political structure, but it's also its ideology? Or do you think it's something different? It's different. See, Putin is not exactly egalitarian in the matter of that. Communist, or the Putin uh, tolerates the free market economy to a much larger extent than than yet the communists. Also, Putin is a, is an example of an authoritarian leader, not a totalitarian. See, Putin is not going to go far out of his way to indoctrinate you, and then the Putin is, uh, he will he would be he he's entirely fine with you thinking whatever you may want to think as long as you don't go out to the street and demonstrate. And I would say also Putin is uh, socially conservative in some ways, that he's an ally of the Orthodox Church, but the, but the communists were stridently and distinctly anti-Christian. They raised Christian buildings to the ground. In fact, in, in, in Russia, you still cannot celebrate Christmas. Well, you can, but no, it's not really customary, because that, that was a Christian holiday that the communists have banned outright. So would it be accurate to say that the contemporary Russian Federation is what Tsarist Russia would have morphed into had the Bolsheviks not come into the picture? I don't think so. I see that uh, if, uh, if the ball had the Bolsheviks lost the war, Russia would have remained the a monarchy in a way. It would have been a bit more like Franco's Spain, if anything. Than a, than a modern state. I would say Russia would have been much more conservative and much less westernized than it is now. It would have been probably much more isolated from, from the outside world. Putin was trying to push Russia in that direction, but I would imagine that had the, had the Bolsheviks lost the war, the civil, lost the civil war, and they'd been quashed, and their uprising been quashed, uh, Russia would have been fundamentally much more religious, and uh, there would have been a more of an aristocracy. Back then, the boyars were in charge. The boyars were the Russian aristocrats who owned, who, who comprised less than 10% of the population, but they owned practically all the land and over 90% of Russians' reserves. And that's the kind of a society Russia was, feudal. That's not what it is now. And in many ways, the communists have made Russia more secular, more progressive, more uh, egalitarian even. So Russia, in a way, seems to have more in common with the European society in terms of wealth inequality than with a Latin American society or a North American society. That would not have happened had, had the Tsars stayed in power. I suppose Putin is trying to turn the clock back on a lot of these uh, secular influences that he sees as undesirable 
but there's only so much so far he can go in turning the clock back. Mm, interesting. Do you travel a lot to Russia uh, to like revisit it or have you just been um, pretty much like detached from it uh, based on your time living in the U.S. or and um, abroad in general? I have not been back to Russia since 2004 when I was 17. And right now, if I do go back, I'd probably go to prison as a political, as a, for, for, for being a dissident. And I've published a lot of things that are unflattering to, to the Putin regime. And really, if, if, if you go to Russia and it turns out that you have an American passport, chances are pretty high that you, the, the EU may be arrested on some dubious charges and only to be traded back 10 years later for one of, one of the Russian political operatives that were arrested on in 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 NATO territory or the U.S. Well, that's just not an option anymore. It's too dangerous, and I see no reason to support a government that has absolutely no respect for basic human rights. I see. Where do you see Russia going in the next few decades? Because there is a lot of talk about uh, this whole, like the end of like the unipolar moment and the emergence of multipolarity, which is seeing like the U.S. not have as prominent of a role on the world stage. It still remains like the premier superpower, but it won't have as monolithic control. Where do you see Russia in this new type of geopolitical environment? Yeah, it's really difficult to say. I mean, I'd be lying to you if, if, I, if I told you I could predict this. But one thing for sure is that there will be a succession crisis at some point. There is no way of knowing how long Putin will, will live. And uh, whoever succeeds him is not going to be, is not going to do so in a, in a, in a palace school. It's not going to do this smoothly and bloodlessly. There, uh, what, what, what is likely to happen is possibly a civil war. You, there, there was about a hundred different political operatives who, who are potential or potential successors to Putin, but they are not about to resolve that question amicably. I don't see that happening. So whatever may or may not happen, I think Russia will eventually be weakened, will be, will be crippled by, by the ongoing economic crisis, will be crippled by the war effort, and most of all, uh, the, deadly, the, the most problematic issue of all is the succession crisis. I do not see a civilized or, or let alone peaceful way to, to resolve that. Do you see a potential for like a kind of balkanization or like a breakdown in terms of territorial integrity of Russia in the future? I don't think so. See, Russia is not as multicultural and as divided of a society as, as was the former Yugoslavia. For the most part, I mean, the largest ethnic group is just white Russians. And there are, of course, people of Asian descent, there are people of Georgian descent, Armenian descent, Kazakh, Uzbek, you name it. But they are a minority and they're not nearly, they're not well organized enough to be able to to be able to, to become a, a force to be reckoned with. So balkanization of Russia, that's the hypothesis that I wouldn't take wouldn't take very seriously. I would say that the dominant group will always be the white Russians and uh, they're gonna they're going to be the ones competing for power in the Russian system. And, and let me just ask you this. How many how many politicians, non-white politicians in Russia do you know of? Have you ever heard, uh, heard of an Asian-looking guy or Middle Eastern-looking guy serving in the Duma? 
Have you seen anything like that? Uh, no, not that I know of. Well, then that's exactly the point. You see that in the former Yugoslavia, there were six different countries, and all of them had political influence. They, they were already neatly segregated. All of them had their local leaders. They had different religions, and uh, they, they, all, they all had political sway. That, I don't see that happening in Russia. Do you think that, like, the... Because Russia had, like, the Chechen wars in the 90s. Do you think that they'll still have problems, like, taming Islamist elements in the Caucasus, or has that problem been, like, totally resolved? No, I don't think so. They've already been co-opted by Putin. Uh, Ramazan Kadyrov is an ally of Putin. In fact, this is, this is the only, this is the answer to my question. That's the only ethnic minority leader whom I know of who's influential in Russian politics. There, there are not a whole lot of them. I find that Kadyrov has more to gain by remaining loyal to the, to the Russian political establishment than by going out on his own and seeking political autonomy. Mm, I see. Now, let's go back to the West because... The West is definitely going through a major transitionary moment in its political development. And as we mentioned before, we are seeing what is could be described as a, so, a slow social disintegration of communal bonds, traditional like sexual norms. Even also, I would say a breakdown of political norms now that elections in the U.S. are becoming are starting to become questioned by almost every side of the spectrum. If you look at like the 2016 election, you saw many Democrats and liberals complain by saying that the election was somehow rigged by Russia or there was like Russian interference, at least. And then 2020. You had people on the uh, pro-Trump right saying that there was tons of election irregularities and even outright cases of voter fraud. Where do you see things going in the U.S.? Do you think that there is a potential for some type of institutional breakdown or even civil war for that matter? Yeah, the Barbara Walter wrote a wonderful book on the Civil War, and we've discussed this on the Praise of Folly. Right now, the U.S. is at, at, the, at, the, at the highest risk of a civil war than, than it has ever been. And there is a number of factors contributing to this. The first factor is anocracy, that the U.S. is no longer a clear-cut democracy, but it also is not an autocracy. So that, that gray area between a democracy and a dictatorship is what makes makes the U.S. more likely, the more prone to civil war. The other issue is that there is a dominant ethnic group that has been losing power steadily. That's the WASP. They're, they're in the same position as the Serbs were in former Yugoslavia. So there are these two things. And, and, and of course, the third thing is that there is identity politics, that people now make political decisions based on their ethnic affiliations rather than uh, based on arguments alone. So the, now it's definitely more likely than it has ever been. But uh, countries that are at a high risk of a civil war generally don't have civil wars. Usually the chances that are happening it's maybe 10% of that. But every year that these issues are not resolved, they're going to be, they're going to be worse. That's like smoking. That's the matter for Barbara Walter used. That smoking is not going to kill you your first year. But if you smoke for 30 years, it's going to compound all the, all the other issues that you've been having. 
And uh, that's when it becomes more problematic. So I can't tell you one way or the other if civil, if civil war is going to happen. But we certainly are closer to than we have ever done. So I would not rule that out. I mean, if, if political polarization continues the way that it has been, it, we just might see it in the next, in the next five to ten years. There's been a theory going around that I'm actually starting to become much more partial to. That is, they're saying that 2024, specifically the 2024 presidential election cycle in the United States, could be the last like election cycle in the U.S. Like the last normal uh, form of presidential elections. Do you share that view? No, I really doubt that. First of all, you can't turn the clock back on a democracy all that easily. You know, this isn't 1924 anymore, where the military generals do step into the into government offices and overthrow overthrow the democratically elected president. The the time for that has passed. This isn't Argentina in 1976, nor is it Chile of 1973. These things are are, are have been consigned to the to the ash heap of, hist- of history. As Trotsky used to say, oh, I doubt it. Well, what's more likely is that we're going to be seeing more anocracy, more of a flawed democracy. We're going to, it's going to be increasingly clear that American elections are, are, are really guided, managed by big money. There will be more dissatisfaction, discontent with the system. There will be more more accusations, usually baseless accusations that the election was stolen. But I don't believe people are just going to abolish democracy itself. I don't see that. There is no viable alternative. I see. Is there a possibility for um, the U.S. turning into more of like a failed state? I don't see that happening because the first for that to happen, the, the armed forces have to be divided, the military has to be divided. The FBI and the CIA have to be have to be rendered incapable of being the faction as the Leviathan. No, I'd say no. The American, the American centralized government is too strong for that. I do see that happening in Mexico or Colombia, maybe. See, Mexico is, is where the AMLO, the AMLO government failed to, to assert its legitimate authority, failed to become a Leviathan. I don't. I don't imagine that the U.S. government will become quite that weak that that they just won't be able to to repress all these radical elements that want to enforce their own version of political legitimacy. Well, Alec, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Before we leave, where can my listeners keep up with your latest work and follow whatever content you're putting out these days? Academiccomposition.com. That's our that's my website for academic composition. www.academiccomposition.com. You can follow us on YouTube. Uh, the, the channel is called Academic Writing Composition. And then of course I'm 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 an editor at Attack the System, ATS, Keith, Keith Preston's blog. I publish a lot of my writings there. And of course, you can find us on Facebook if you look up for if you look up academic composition awesome uh great stuff man and thank you for coming on again and to my listeners thank you so much for your precious attention and with that el nino has spoken